Well, please turn with me now to this uh, 16th Psalm uh, in your copy of God's Word. If you're using the church Bible, then you'll find it on page 544. Psalm 16, page 544. And we'll read this whole psalm. The title is A Miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, please keep that psalm open in front of you as we uh, work through it together this evening. Psalm 15, which we looked at two Sabbath evenings ago, finishes in verse 5 with the promise that he who does these things shall never be moved. He shall remain unmoved. And it seems as though Psalm 16 in many ways follows on from that thought because it seems to be very much the theme of Psalm 16. I shall not be moved. David speaks about being preserved in verse 1, about God as his refuge. He speaks about not being shaken in verse 8 and how in verse 9 he dwells secure both in this life and in the next. And so uh, it, it does seem to, to flow on from Psalm 15, this idea of not being moved. It seems to that verses 5 and 6 are a little bit like the hinge of the psalm. Uh, verse 5 looks back and sums up verses 1 to 4 which are all about commitment to the Lord. 
And then verse 6 looks ahead and sums up verses 7 to 11, which are all about blessings from the Lord, blessings that come to the one who makes the Lord his refuge. And so I want us to take those two halves of the psalm uh, as the structure of our message this evening. So first of all, in verses 1 to 5, commitment to the Lord. Commitment to the Lord. In almost every verse, David here declares his exclusive commitment to God. We see that in at least three different ways. First of all, in verse 1, David looks to God for his security. He looks to God exclusively. He commits himself to God exclusively for his security. We don't know the background to this psalm. Uh, We don't know why David needed to be preserved. We don't know why he needed a refuge. It may have been because of enemies, uh, idolaters, the the, the people that are uh, referenced in verse 4. Or it could perhaps have been some kind of life-threatening illness, which may be behind verses 9 to 11. Uh, He's praising God that God is not going to abandon his soul to the grave. So perhaps he's looking for refuge, he's looking for preservation because of enemies or because of illness, or it may be something else entirely. But the point is that whatever the problem is, he is looking to the Lord for security. And he's looking only to the Lord. He's looking exclusively to the Lord for protection. And that is particularly striking, isn't it? Because this is David we're talking about. This is the king. And as king, David would have had a whole range of potential places of refuge that he could have looked to. He had his own military experience, didn't he? All those months in the wilderness, on the run from Saul, fighting against the Philistines involved in guerrilla warfare. Uh, This is a man who knew how to handle a sword and a sling and a spear. But he doesn't look to his own military cunning or ability. This is a man with a whole army at his disposal, but he's not looking to the army. This is a man with wealth, uh, any amount of, of money that he could draw upon. But he's not making money his refuge. He's not looking to his palace or his walls, or his gates, or any of these things. He looks to the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And I wonder, do we know that kind of exclusive commitment to the Lord? Where do you go to for refuge when life is hard? when you've had a bad day, when circumstances go against you? Do you say, like David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge? I guess that we would probably all say that we do. 
But is it more than just words? Do we really look to the Lord as our refuge? Or is it that we say God is our refuge, but actually in reality, we're depending on our friends or our work or food or the escapist world of TV and the internet? Is that where we go when we need refuge? Is that where we turn in reality? Is that the first place that we go? Or perhaps we look to our own ingenuity and our own strength. We say to ourselves, I'll sort this out. I've got this. I'll get through this on my own. I don't need anybody else. I can fix it. I can sort it. The believer goes to God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then in verse 2, David looks to God for joy. Not just for security, but for joy. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, David is not saying there that he has nothing good in his life apart from God. He's not saying that family and friends and a lovely home and all your abilities and successes, he's not saying that they're not good things. But rather, he's acknowledging, isn't he, that every good and perfect gift is from the Lord and that it all finds its meaning and its joy in relation to him. That, that, that there is no true joy apart from the Lord. It's what we were thinking about this morning in Ecclesiastes. You can have every good thing in the world under the sun, but without God, it's meaningless and it's empty. As Jesus put it, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Do you look to God for your joy? Do you really believe that if you have God, you have everything? Do you live like you believe that? Is God your greatest good, your chiefest joy? Who he is in himself, as we were singing in Psalm 100, and not just what he gives us. And do you delight in him? Isn't that what David is doing here? He delights in God. It's a beautiful thing for him to worship God and to praise God. Don't hang your happiness on stuff or on people. Or as Jesus puts it, don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And then verse 3 shows us that if we delight in God, then we will inevitably delight in God's people. Uh, we look to God for joy, and we find great joy in God's people. Calvin puts it like this. He says, We ought, therefore, highly to value and esteem the true and devoted servants of God, and regard nothing as of greater importance than to connect ourselves with their society. 
And this we will do if we wisely reflect in what true excellence and dignity consist and do not allow the vain splendor of the world and its deceitful pumps to dazzle our eyes. Nothing of greater importance than to connect yourself with the people of God. Or Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this. He says, of course, the saints are not perfect. They infuriate. They aggravate. They frustrate. Particularly self-appointed whiners who perpetually point out how hurtful and uncaring the fellowship is. But Davis goes on to say, but like our own children, we wouldn't trade them for anything because of whose they are. The saints on earth are God's people, and that makes them of inestimable importance and value. And I wonder, can we say this about the members of Trinity? Is this your attitude to the people of God? They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Of course, we, we should say this about any Christian in any church anywhere, but especially we should say it about the people in our own congregation, the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Do you look forward to meeting with God's people? And do you take advantage of every opportunity, as Calvin says? Uh, do, do you make it your first business to connect yourself with the society of God's people? And that means, of course, coming to public worship, morning and evening on the Lord's Day, but also to our midweek meetings and to our adult Bible class and to our family nights. Whenever the doors are open and there's an opportunity to come and to meet with the excellent ones in whom all our delight is? Are we grabbing those opportunities with both hands? If it's a choice between fellowship with the saints of God, in whom all our delight is, or staying home and watching television, or doing an extra hour of work, or going to the gym, why, why would you choose anything other than the saints of God if you don't have to? If there are these opportunities when the saints of the land are gathering together, the excellent ones in whom all our delight is meant to be, we shouldn't have to be dragged along. We shouldn't have to be cajoled into going to meet. We, should, we shouldn't be able to be dragged away from going to meet with God's people. I wonder, do outsiders who visit our congregation get a sense of this delight that we have in one another. Uh, I'm sure it's noticeable in the, the fact that we're not stampeding out the door after the service, that we're staying around and we're talking to each other and everyone's talking to everyone else and you don't have it, any people that are on their own and neglected and, and, and nobody's speaking to them. But as they listen to how we speak to one another and what we say about one another, will they get the impression these are people who really do delight in one another's company? 
We need to be so careful, don't we, about how we speak about other Christians, what we say about them in social media. These are God's excellent ones. There's no place for bearing grudges or ill will or feuding or quarreling. Not amongst God's excellent ones. So David looks to God for security. He looks to God for joy. And then in verse 4, he commits himself to God's worship. He commits himself to God's worship. He says that I'm not going to have anything to do with false gods and their vile worship. And why not? Well, the reason that he gives is because worshiping and serving anything other than the true God leads to misery. He says their sorrows will multiply. I wonder if that rings a bell in your mind at all. Because there's an echo in that phrase. That phrase is used somewhere else in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, where God speaks about multiplying Eve's pains in childbirth. This is what always happens when you say to anything other than God, you are my God. Apart from you, I have no good thing. It doesn't have to be something vile, like a blood sacrifice. It might be something good in itself. It might be your family, your children, your work, your money, your home, your health, your beauty, your comfort. It could be anything. But if we make anything other than God our ultimate thing in life, and if we put something other than God in the first place that belongs to God alone, if we look to that thing for meaning and for purpose and for joy, then we're setting ourselves up for a life of exponential misery. Your sorrows will multiply because nothing other than God can satisfy. Nothing other than God will last. Nothing but God is able to save and then verses 5 and 6 really are the flip side of verse 4. They're the opposite of verse 4. Worshipping false gods multiplies misery, but worshipping the true God multiplies happiness. And the language here in verses 5 and 6 is language that was associated with Israel's conquest of the promised land. Uh, portion, lot, Boundary lines, inheritance, all of those things were used at the time of Israel going in and taking possession of the promised land. But the blessing here that David's speaking about is far, far more wonderful than a land flowing with milk and honey. Because he says the Lord himself is the believer's portion. You may remember that that's something that God promised to the priests. The priests in Israel didn't get land. All, all the other citizens of Israel, they got a parcel of land, but not the priests. Instead, God said that he would be their share and their inheritance. But now David is saying this blessing is not just for the clergy. 
It's not just for the priests and for the Levites. This is for everyone. The Lord Himself can be your portion. No matter what amazing blessings God gives us, and He gives us many, many blessings, He Himself is the greatest and the best. The most favored tribe that got the best bit of the promised land, the most fertile soil or the best harbor, whatever it was, the best grazing land, the most favored tribe when the boundary lines were being assigned had nothing like this inheritance, the Lord himself. And that's the attitude that we all need to have, isn't it? Everything that we have is given to us by the Lord. Whether we have much or little, it's not random. It's not the luck of the draw. It's determined by the Lord. But far better than that, whatever material blessings we have, the Lord himself is your chosen portion and cup. No matter what your circumstances, no matter how lowly your circumstances are, every single believer here from the least to the greatest should be able to say what David says here. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. So commitment to the Lord in the first half of the psalm. David looks to the Lord for security and for joy and for worship. And then the second half of the psalm, verses 6 to 11, describe blessing from the Lord. Blessing from the Lord. What can the believer who commits himself to the Lord expect? Well, someone who looks to the Lord for security and joy and who worships God wholeheartedly will receive a beautiful inheritance. That's how it's described, isn't it, in verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Well, here's what that beautiful inheritance looks like. And again, uh, David mentions three things. In verse 7, guidance in life's ways. Guidance in life's ways. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. There are two sides to the Lord's instruction according to this verse. The first side is that the Lord gives David counsel. In other words, that is the word of the Lord. God's word comes to David. It might come through uh, the Bible uh, or whatever part of the Bible David had at this stage, probably just the first five books of the Bible and perhaps uh, a few other parts. Or it might come through a prophet. Uh, the Lord gave counsel to David. The Lord's word came to David through Nathan the prophet, you remember, uh, or Gad the seer. Or perhaps even God's word came to David in a direct revelation, that the Holy Spirit spoke directly to David because 
David himself is called a prophet in the Bible. However it came, whether it came through writing or a prophet or the direct revelation of the Holy Spirit, God's word counseled David. God spoke to David. God taught David about what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was bad, what was wise and what was foolish. His word came to David. That's the first side of the Lord's instruction. And then the other side is, uh, in verse 7, that during the night, David's heart instructed him. David's heart instructed him. And this seems to be what Psalm 1 is talking about. The godly man who meditates on God's word day and night. It describes the believer reflecting on what he has heard from the Lord, mulling it over in quiet times when he's able to think. It seems perhaps to refer especially to the conscience pricking as David lay in quietness, as he thought back over all the things that he had said and done during the day, uh, and, and he's thinking about God's word and what God says about these different situations, and his conscience is maybe speaking to him. Uh, that's the, the, the word that's being used there in verse 7. In the night also my heart, uh, literally my kidneys, uh, which represents the conscience, my conscience instructs me. God gives guidance to the believer. That's part of the beautiful inheritance that you have if you're a Christian, that the Lord gives you counsel. The Lord teaches you. And it would be easy to forget, wouldn't it, what a blessing that is. How beautiful an aspect of our inheritance that is. To be able to know what is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is bad. Can you imagine having to try to work that out yourself? Imagine you didn't have God's Word. You didn't have God's counsel. You didn't have the Scriptures. How would you know? That's the, that's the situation that our world is in, isn't it? The world is tying itself in knots at the moment, trying to just give a simple definition of what a woman is, or trying to work out if it is good or bad to change your gender. It's just like it says in the book of Jonah, people do not know their right from their left. In fact, I was struck by that just over these past few days, listening to the news about this horrific case of Lucy Letby and how there has been so much outrage, rightly, at a nurse murdering babies. And, and every news report about it. Every newspaper article, this is what they've been frothing at the mouth speaking about. They've said this is a new chapter that will need to be written in criminology textbooks. They can't get over uh, the inhumanity of killing babies. 
they're absolutely baffled and mystified. How could someone who seemed so normal and pleasant do such horrific crimes? And they don't seem to be able to see the horrible inconsistency and hypocrisy of what they're saying. Because how many normal and pleasant doctors and nurses are murdering hundreds and hundreds of unborn babies just a few weeks younger than Lucy Letby's victims, just down the corridor from the unit where she worked. And these normal and pleasant doctors and nurses who are murdering unborn babies are praised to the skies for providing essential health care for women. Our world hasn't a clue about what is right and what is wrong. They're completely self-destructive, aren't they, in their ignorance. We have guidance in life's ways. What a beautiful inheritance. We don't need to guess. We don't have any problems. We have perfect clarity about what is right and what is wrong. And then in verse 8, not only do we have guidance in life's ways, but we have peace in life's circumstances. Peace in life's circumstances. David says, I shall not be shaken. What an amazing thing to be able to say that. How many people would love to be able to say that and to mean it? That no matter what life holds, I shall not be shaken. A cancer diagnosis. I shall not be shaken. The death of a loved one. I shall not be shaken. The loss of your job. The loss of all your possessions. The loss of your reputation. Not getting the exam results that you'd hoped for. Your minister getting a call to another congregation. Your minister leaving and going to another congregation, I shall not be shaken. How is that possible? It's possible because of the first part of the verse. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Because David is living for God, because David is in the presence of God. He's at my right hand. That might be a picture from the courtroom, or it might be a picture from the battlefield, or it might be both that's being evoked by David here. Either way, he's depending on the Lord. He's committing himself and all his ways to the Lord. Every decision, every need, every difficulty, whatever I have to face, I'm setting the Lord before me, and I will not be shaken. That's a beautiful inheritance, isn't it? Peace in life's circumstances. Guidance in life's ways. And then thirdly, in verses 9 to 11, hope at life's end. Hope at life's end. Because here's the one thing more than anything else that shakes mortal men and women. And that is death, the last enemy. We've been conscious of that over the last few weeks as a congregation. And yet even in the face of death, 
the believer is able to say, I shall not be shaken because the Lord is always before me. Not just for a few years here on earth, but forever. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. The Lord will not abandon his people to death. And that's why he's filled with joy in verse 9. That's why his whole being rejoices, because he has a whole person hope. He's not just hopeful for his soul, that his soul is going to go and live in heaven forever with God, but he says, even my flesh, my body is secure. God is going to save all of me, and not just a part of me. And the believer's hope is summed up, isn't it, so beautifully in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Walking the path of life that God has made known here is wonderful. But that path doesn't stop at death. That path continues on and on and on forever. And it leads to an increasingly deeper and fuller and richer and more joyful experience of life that never ends. What a beautiful inheritance we have. Hope at life's end. And our hope as Christians today in the face of death is so much clearer, isn't it, and brighter than even David's was. Because we live on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which David prophesies here in verse 10, but could only dimly understand. Because Jesus Christ is the Holy One that David speaks of in verse 10. The one whom God would not let see corruption. Those words are not true of David. They're not true of any other human being in history. Peter explains that, doesn't he, on the day of Pentecost. He says, David died, and David's body did decay, but Jesus' body didn't. And because of Jesus, because God raised Jesus up on the third day, we can face death without any fear. Every Christian, just like Elsie McCune, when we met with her on Thursday afternoon, just a few hours before she died, one of the first things that she said to us was, I'm ready to go home. And as we talked on uh, throughout the afternoon, she repeated that in different ways. I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go and to see the Lord Jesus. We can face death without any fear. We can even welcome it because the Lord is always before us at our right hand. What an incentive all of this is to do what David does and to make the Lord our refuge, to commit ourselves to him for this life and for the next. And it's a challenge for each one of us, isn't it? Have I done that? Am I doing that? Am I looking to the Lord alone? Or am I looking somewhere else for my security and for my joy? And if you are, 
you're not a Christian this evening and you're looking somewhere else for security and joy, if you're worshiping something else, then make no mistake, you will be shaken. You'll be shaken in this life when your false gods let you down and your sorrows will multiply. But above all, you'll be shaken at the day of judgment when there's no Savior at your right hand to defend you and to save you from hell. But the man or the woman, the boy or the girl who makes the Lord his refuge will never be shaken, no matter what you're called to go through in this life or the day of judgment. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful inheritance that you have for all those who commit themselves to you. We thank you that you have brought so many of us here this evening to exclusively look to you as our refuge, that we have committed our ways to you. We're looking to you for our security. We're looking to you for our joy. We're looking to you in worship. And so we pray, Lord God, that you will give us this uh, delightful inheritance more and more, that we would know your guidance for life's ways. We pray that we would know your peace in all of life's circumstances. And we thank you for the hope that we have when we come to life's end. We pray, Lord God, that as we walk in these paths, we would be good witnesses to the world for you. We pray that the world who run after other gods, whose sorrows multiply, we pray that as they look at us, they would want what we have. We pray that we will show them by our lives and tell them by our words uh, all that they can have, that this beautiful inheritance that we enjoy, that we delight in, can be theirs also. We pray, Lord God, that you would draw many, many people through us to know these things for themselves. We pray, Lord, that if there are any here in our midst or in our families who are still strangers to these things, who are running after other gods, Lord, we pray that you would stop them in their tracks this very night and turn them around and draw them to yourself. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.